0: Someday, Liz, I'll go back, said Private First Class Peter Robert Zanetta of the 37th Engineer Combat Battalion and first assault wave to hit Omaha Beach. I'll go back and I'll see it all again. I'll see the beach, the barricades, and the graves. Those words of Private Zanatta come to us from his daughter, Lisa Zanatta Hen, in a heart-rending story about the event her father spoke of so often. She tells some of his stories of World War II, but says of her father, the story to end all stories was D-Day. He made me feel the fear of being on that boat waiting to land. I could smell the ocean and feel the seasickness. I can see the looks on his fellow soldiers' faces, the fear, the anguish, the uncertainty of what lay ahead. And when they landed, I can feel the strength and courage of the men who took those first steps through the tide to what must have surely looked like instant death. And like all the families of those who went to war, she describes how she came to realize her own father's survival was a miracle. So many men died. I know that my father watched many of his friends be killed. I know that he must have died inside a little each time. Lisa Zanatta Hen began her story by quoting her father who promised that he would return to Normandy. She ended with a promise to her father who died eight years ago of cancer. I'm going there, dad. And I'll see the beaches and the barricades and the monuments. I'll see the graves and I'll put flowers there just like you wanted to do. I'll feel all the things you made me feel through your stories and your eyes. I'll never forget what you went through, Dad, nor will I let anyone else forget. And Dad, I'll always be proud. Through the words of his loving daughter, who is here with us today, a D-Day veteran has shown us the meaning of this day far better than any president can. It is enough for us to say about Private Zanatta and all the men of honor and courage, we will always remember. We will always be proud. We will always be prepared
1: so we may be always free. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm on with John Lovell. Uh, We have an interesting episode for you guys. As I sat down and had an interview with retired Special Forces major and author of the book, The Lions of Kandahar, Rusty Bradley, which I'll play for you guys in a few minutes. But before we get into that, uh, John, as you well know, the the 72nd anniversary of D-Day just passed, and um, you know it, it was an event that really changed the course of the next, you know, 72 years. You know, being an Army Ranger who served in the Global War on Terror, you know, I, I wanted to ask you specifically, you know, what D-Day meant to you, and and you know, being with your experience and background. Sure, sure. Happy to. And uh,
2: I've got to say with a, a, a pang of jealousy that I missed your uh, this show. I was teaching a class, couldn't get in there. But um, to speak to uh, yeah, the major about uh, just his past and uh, one, I haven't circled around to reading his book, but I hear great things. For me, D-Day uh, and what it represents uh, is, yeah, is something a little bit hard to describe. On, on the one hand, I think about such an incredible an incredibly impossibly difficult type battle that those guys faced. I mean, I, I've uh, seen my share of action, but nothing, nothing even close uh, to the uh, uh, the battles at Normandy, at Pointe du Hoc, and Omaha Beach. And it just, I can't imagine the, uh, living through that kind of death toll. And uh, just um, it, it at the same time of just kind of that tragedy, uh, I, I swell up with pride about just uh, over- fighting against absolute overwhelming odds. Uh, U.S. soldiers would storm a beach against fortified positions at an aerial superior advantage. So uh, the Germans had an incredible tactical advantage. They had uh, weaponry seemingly advantage. Um, It just – as I look back on it and I just think about, okay, how would I do that? I'm like, well, if I pull it off, which is thin, a lot of people are going to die in the process. And these brave dudes that would storm this beach uh, is just uh, – I don't know. It makes me kind of just proud to be an American, as, if that sounds a little corny. Sorry. Uh, it makes me real proud to be from 2nd Range Battalion as well. It was um, an amphibious assault, which was trying to establish a stronghold in an uh, in entry point in the German defenses in Normandy, France. And so uh, you know if you can't if you can't establish a beachhead get a stronghold you can't get into France. <laughs> so um anyway it was a real pivotal battle and it's one I think that we should have lost. Just looking kind of at the uh you know at the terrain and looking at what we're up against I think we should have lost it. Uh pinned down uh, our forces were taking heavy heavy casualties and there's just not much way that we could have uh Gotten up to those positions, 2nd Ranger Battalion and 5th Ranger Battalion. 5th Ranger Battalion's now been disbanded, and there's a training battalion that, that uh, exists, and that's just Ranger School. It's not an operational fighting unit. Now we just have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Ranger Battalions as uh, fighting units. Uh, but 2nd and uh, what was 5th Ranger Battalion then uh, scales the 100 foot cliffs at Point Duhoc, which is uh, kind of off center of Omaha Beach and end up taking out the machine guns. Now, this is a tough climb. This is about a 100-foot ascent to the top of very, very steep cliffs. They're using rope ladders, which weren't long enough, so they're just kind of hanging in on their fingernails, free climbing up what they can't get rope ladders up, uh, to uh, get up there and start taking out uh, defenses. A very, very terrifying and difficult climb. Uh, and, And essentially, if you don't have the ranger's leading the way off the beach and up the cliffs to take out those uh, strategic positions on the tops of uh, Point De Hawk and, and the cliffs overlooking uh, the beach, it just would have been an absolute massacre. So I, I guess it just makes me proud as, as the men of 2nd Ranger Battalion, 5th Ranger Battalion, the guys who were, uh, were kind of my forefathers uh, from, from battalion, that they'd exercise such Daring in the face of insurmountable odds, to um, just that violence of action, that uh, relentless. I am not going to quit, and regardless of the odds against you, I'm going to crush you. And it's not just a, a you know a v- virtue possessed in the United States' premier raiding force, Ranger Battalion, but I think it's close to the heart of you know uh, again to risk sounding corny, just. That indomitable spirit, uh, that fight or die uh, spirit, that it means to be an American. So, so that battle resonates with me. It, it's it's one where I, I feel proud to have been a soldier. I feel proud to be an American uh, on that that very very uh, important day where such a decisive battle would be won in World War
1: Two. Yes, yeah, it was definitely. Um... a a pivotal and and vital moment in the history of the modern era, you know? Um, sure. And, and it really changed, you know, it helped change the, uh, the course of the war and which, you know, led to the current situation we have now in the world, which is not perfect, but you know, you you try and think of what the alternative would have been, you know? Sure.
2: No, I can't imagine. I don't know.
1: Yeah. So, okay. So now, um, I'll play the interview that I had with uh, Special Forces Major Rusty Bradley. Hey, what's up, guys? Um, For this episode, I have the honor of having on Major Rusty Bradley. And uh, The Major served 21 years in the U.S. Army and U.S. Special Forces. He was recently medically retired for wounds received in combat. He's the author of the best-selling book and one of my favorites, The Lines of Kandahar, and has been published in Time Magazine, Soldier of Fortune, Veritas, War on the Rocks, and numerous other publications and blogs. He has earned four Valor Awards from three different countries. Major Bradley is one of of only 40 U.S. service members in the history of the U.S. military to receive the Medal of Valor from the Canadian Prime Minister. So, Major, it's great to have you on, and I thank you for taking out some of the time of your day. Hey John, thanks for having me. Hey, so um, you know, like I said before, you know, Lines of Kandahar is one of my favorite books. Um, you know, like G Watt era uh books. Um so for, for people who want to list uh who wanna purchase that book, where can they get it from?
3: Oh wow, you can get um you can get the lines of candahar in any format from MP three to um an ebook, hard copy, soft copy—you can get them at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, anywhere where books are found, or on the internet. Just Google "Lines of Kandahar," or uh, if you want to read some more about the story, go to Lines of Kandahar. dot uh, com, and you'll be able to you'll be able to read about it and find out where it's for sale.
1: Nice. So, on my social media. Um, my social media accounts, what I do occasionally from time to time is i 'll share like a small excerpt from a book that i'm reading mm-hmm. and kind of draw some interest to it so i've done that with lines of Kandahar so people who follow me they, I'm sure they 're familiar with the book um so uh, can we get into you know kind of your career like what what made you want to join the u s army and then can you kind of go through your career as you've uh, progressed?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I grew up in a uh, pretty rural portion of uh, the mountains of Western North Carolina right outside of Asheville. I was the first person in my family to go to college. And after completing college, I kind of ran out of resources, ran out of everything, and and you know when you graduate college, it's time to it's time to put on your you know your grown up panties and you know be a man. And I was working two jobs and um, trying to find my field of interest, and ran into a good friend of mine that I had gone to high school with, and we had been in high school JROTC together. And he said, why don't you come by and see me and we'll have some lunch and talk a little bit about, you know, your life and your future. And, um, it was, it was really an interesting, um, occur- uh, occurrence because, you know, when you, when you, when you go through that, that struggle at a young age and you're trying to uh, not only figure out who you are and where you're going and what you're going to do, but, um, the reality of paying for it and being accountable and responsible kind of hit me all at one time. And I don't know. I went to, I went to the recruiting station to have lunch with a friend of mine and, um, he caught me flipping through a couple of pamphlets and he put in this, uh, I think it was a floppy disk. That's, unfortunately, I'm showing how I'm aging myself. But he put on this video about uh, this group of people called the Airborne Rangers. And I was absolutely sold. And he offered me an opportunity to pick any duty station I wanted to go to. And the Army would give me a job, help me pay off my college loans. And I didn't see that I could turn it down. And that's actually how I ended up in the U S army. And, um, I fell in love with it. I love the challenge. I love, uh, the equality of it. I love the moral compass, the discipline. Um, it, it was like, I finally found where I was supposed to be in life.
1: Nice. So I know that you, You enlisted, right? Or did you go in as an officer?
3: No, sir. When I came in in, um, early in 93, um, George Bush Sr. had um, just lost the election to um, Bill Clinton. And they were already in the process of downsizing the military. So they didn't want any officers. They needed um enlisted personnel which absolutely did not bother me at all because i the truth is i didn't know anything about it or the organization i didn't know any different i had grown up you know doing everything from construction working concrete and putting in sewer lines and re-tying rebar and working on farms and you know very tough manual labor so um they were going to help me pay off my college. That's <laughs> That was the best deal I ever heard about. And um, I didn't get a chance to go to officer candidate school until I had been enlisted for seven years, which I think in retrospect was uh, the Lord's way of guiding me towards having experience in an area when I did not know that I would eventually need it
1: badly. So that's kind of an interesting dynamic. Um, Would you say that that's a a plus to to go and enlist it and then get your commission?
3: Yes, sir, I believe so. I mean, I don't say that because I think I'm any kind of a great leader whatsoever. I think my dad told me – like. I'm starting to sound like my daughter using the word like all the time, (laughs) but, um, my dad told me that you couldn't lead men until you understood the hardships of being a man. So you had to, you had to walk with them, carry their burdens, understand their challenges before you could lead men because, as a leader in the military, we all know that you're responsible for the most important human resource, the, 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 the most important resource that man can produce, and that's people's lives. And that's what my dad was trying to explain to me. And I think that now in retrospect, I was very thankful that I had a prior service background uh, it also helps when you know how to deal with privates because you've been a private. Um, sometimes it helps with compassion and sometimes it helps with punishment, but it gives you, in my opinion, a much more well-rounded profile and thought process and decision-making process when you've been on both sides. Right, absolutely. But that's, yeah. That's just my
1: My two cents. Right. Okay. So, when did you decide that you were gonna go to a special forces selection?
3: Oh wow! I decided I was going to special forces selection in two thousand and two. I was a lieutenant stationed to a second airborne division we had gone into Afghanistan and and Southern Afghanistan with a second wave of people that were deploying over. And I saw really quickly, now I was always about five or six years older than my peers because I'd already been to college and then worked a couple of years. But I saw what the regular army was going to do and how it was going to turn into a meat grinder. And I didn't like a lot of things about it. And it just so happened that one day I met this guy who was at the time named, I believe it was Sergeant first class, Mike Duskin. And Mike was, I believe, a, a 19th or 20th group soldier. That was one of the first units to go into Southern Afghanistan. And Mike and I, just immediately became friends. And he was one of those guys that could literally poach people right out of their unit for U S special forces. I mean, he was a chameleon. He was this giant of a man physically. Um, He understood people and human dynamics. And uh, I was in a, I was in a headquarters that, some of the commanders had some leadership issues and eventually got kicked out of the military. And he saw that I was looking for a place to land. I just wanted to be a part of something bigger than me. And, um, so he convinced me to send a letter from Afghanistan to the special forces recruiting command and Unbelievably, they responded very quickly, and while I was deployed in Afghanistan, we managed to get all the paperwork submitted and get my packet submitted so that three weeks after I came back from Afghanistan on my first tour, I was in Special Forces selection because they were looking to recruit um combat arms officers. And my only regret 15 years later is I didn't do it sooner.
1: Wow, that's awesome. So, okay, so now you you go to selection, you pass. Um, And then for the next 15 years or so, you have multiple rotations all to Afghanistan and for kind of a unique... Uh, reason, which which is pretty interesting. Can you talk about that at all?
3: Um, I was one of the first, I was the second of the first two language classes that were specifically selected by, <clears throat> excuse me, the Special Forces Command in order to build long, build and develop long-term continuity for its forces and its leaders in Afghanistan. And it's kind of hard to imagine until you've been in an organization or the unit like the military where you've got these leaders, um, non-commissioned officers and officers who are so smart that they can look in their invisible globe and see what's going to happen 10 or 20 years. And that's what they were doing. And I was selected as, as the second part of this pilot program to send guys into a language and area study of southern Afghanistan, so that we came out, we would constantly rotate through and main uh, maintain access and placement in southern Afghanistan. So, of all eight of my rotations uh, that I that I deployed, all of them were in southern Afghanistan. So, I didn't get to learn a lot about the insurgencies and the effects that went into. Uh, fighting them in Iraq, but the flip side of that coin was I got to, um, I got to really become a subject matter, not expert, but uh, a subject matter base for a lot of the people that were working and
1: moving through Southern Afghanistan. Right, and that's and the reason why that's important is because of the, the ancient tribal um, way of life in Afghanistan. Yeah, Austin Wally. Right. And, you know, and, and it's just really like a, a completely different world in terms of how they do things and how things are done in the Western world. So, you know, that was a lot of foresight um, by, by the commanders and, and, and the guys who came up with that idea to... And what that was—that was early in in the war, right? Like oh two or three or something like that. Yes, sir. That's correct. Yeah. So that, that shows a lot of foresight, and um, you know, I, I think it's very interesting that they they knew that, you know, early on, and then I think it it took took a while before that was like the overall policy of the U.S. military's objective in Afghanistan. Yeah, they were. Um they were
3: extremely knowledgeable uh, about things like uh, the cultural aspects and the religious aspects and um, what it means to fight insurgencies comprised of Sunni and Shia and what's the schism in between the two of them. And then breaking that into the history of Afghanistan and how, uh, the British invaded twice and then the Russians invaded and understanding um, as a, as a sociologist understanding what it means to work by with and through an indigenous people that are subsistence level. I mean, they really during certain times of the, the year, they don't plan on living through uh, but one week at a time. And, and learning to try to adapt that from really what I consider a, a very simplistic Western culture and mentality. It was, it was a lot to kind of, I guess the terminology or the, the best use of the term would probably be drinking from the fire hose.
1: Hey, so I know when the um, the entire uh Bird Dog situation went down, uh, you were in Afghanistan. What was your What were you doing in Afghanistan at the time? My Special Forces Battalion had just
3: rotated in, and I was the Assistant S Three, the Operations Officer, and the Tactical Operations Center Chief. So I ran all the day-to-day combat operations, service, and support uh, functions for the Special Forces Battalion. So if the if the teams needed any class of supply, if they needed food, rations, fuel, if they needed airdrops, close air support, medical evacuation, um, if they needed indirect fires, uh, quick reaction forces, my job was to run the uh,
1: operations to get them the support that they needed. Okay. So you, you had pretty much situational awareness of a lot of combat that was going on. Yes. Every,
3: if, if there was a, if there was a special forces team or anybody in a firefight, whether it was in regional command South or in the special operations task force, it all had to come through me and in front of me because I, for lack of a better term, uh, coordinated the operation, the special forces, and uh, both foreign and um, ISAF. Excuse me, both ISAF and NATO and allied uh, units, all of them came across my desk. So anything that came from ISAF headquarters or adjacent units all came across my computer and this or the Sergeant Majors. And then he shared it with me to figure out how to assimilate the situation.
1: Okay. So pretty, you know, important role. So now you would, this is your role when this whole bold Burgdog Bo dog situation went down, uh, I know initially it was reported in the media as like, you know, he kind of just got lost or something to that effect. And, uh, and then, you know, guys, there were teams, I know a lot of assets were, were being rerouted to try and find him. Uh, What was that like uh, at the time? Well, that, that
3: really was the frustration was the fact that Without compromising any operational security, a message came across our computers saying that there was concern that a U.S. service member was missing. He may have, um, he may have abandoned his post and or he may be under detention of insurgent. That was the first red line message that came out. Within, I would say, the next 24 to 36 hours, another report came out that he had left a note and nobody would say it openly in black and white, but it was clearly articulated that he had abandoned his post. In retrospect, to hear how The presidential administration managed the media and the Department of Defense in releasing that information, um, as if he got lost going to take a leak in the middle of Afghanistan versus abandoning his post was it was disheartening. It was as if you were facilitating a lie and there was nothing you could do about it.
1: Right. And, you know, I, I don't remember exactly the timeline on how things went down, um, but I, I think, you know, it was put out like, you know, they had his family and, um, uh, at a press conference or whatever. And, uh, and then I think guys from his unit – had come out in the media and were saying, wait a minute, he abandoned his post. And I think that's when it kind of came out. If I'm remembering correctly, I, I could be jumbling.
3: Well, we see the your question in reference to assets that were made available uh, to try to find him. There were There were senior general officers that I listened to furiously in a tirade complaining about trying to do their job, trying to conduct combat operations and pressure was being put on them from the administration to find Bergdahl. Well, in tromping around through bad guy held territory, when they have something that they know you want, they can use that to their advantage. And they did. Unfortunately, that, that cost, the, that cost several soldiers their lives trying to locate and liberate Private Bergdahl. So that was a very difficult time for all of us and everyone because of the way it was being portrayed in the media, um, the way it was being handled by the presidential administration, and then for them to completely break U.S. policy in trading five insurgent commanders and releasing them in exchange for Bo Bergdahl. And knowing that he had abandoned his post made the deal even worse.
1: Okay, so now, and, you know, a lot of, obviously a lot of Americans agree with that. Now, what would you say to someone who said, but wait, he's an American, you know, we have to get him anyway. What, you know, like, how how does that, like if someone says that to you, how do you, what do you think when they say that to you?
3: They don't know what the hell they're talking about. It's the same thing that I tell people uh, when, say for example, somebody's part of a a non-governmental organization, a charity organization, a news reporter or a journalist goes into an area that they know that they're going, there is a high probability that they're going to get captured, wounded or killed it's brief to them and they are clearly explained to that while they're off trying to find themselves or get the story that's going to make their career or do whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish there after being clearly warned, I would never allow U.S. service members to be put into harm's way to try to rescue people who do not care enough about themselves to listen to and stay out of areas where they're going to, if you're not worried about yourself, that's fine, but worry about the people that are going to get sent to try to find you and rescue you and use you as bait and kill, and so they can kill other you know, American service members trying to rescue you. I have a very hard line on this. And I, you know, if anybody doesn't like it, that's fine. I mean, I I think everybody's entitled to their opinion. But at the end of the day, when you do something intentionally being told, I mean, we're not talking about playing a game of Monopoly. We're talking about going into war and going into an area that the insurgents control and you get told we're not coming to you know we're not coming to get you and yet we send people to go get them we've just wasted a life of a well trained american freedom fighter because of the poor decision making process and the lack of common sense on behalf of people who want to go out and have their own personal, to fulfill their own personal agenda, knowing that if they get in trouble, the U.S. is going to go and mitigate every single response to try to get you out. There's a huge difference between somebody do, who does something advertently and somebody who does something inadvertently.
1: Right, so like if a guy, you know, you there's a, a mission or whatever, and it's a gunfight, and through the chaos, a guy gets captured. That's one thing, but if a guy's willingly, you know, going into an enemy-held area, some
3: journalist wants to wander into um, Ramadi because he wants to get the exclusive scoop, and he gets snatched up by ISIS. I'm not going in to get them. I'm not risking my, my soldiers lives. I'm not risking those service members, husbands. I'm not risking those children's fathers because some, somebody wants to go out and get a story or somebody wants to go out and hand out rice to refugees. People have been dying since the you know the creation of earth and man in warfare nobody does more to protect human life than the us military but when somebody is willing to assume that you're going to come get them to their own detriment because they're trying to achieve their personal goal or accomplish their own agenda, that's just wrong. It's just flat wrong. And nobody wants to say that, but that kind of goes back to we've swung from one end of the pendulum to the other. You know, in Vietnam, they didn't want anybody going into the field because of one thing or the other. Nowadays, I got news for you. When a certain general and his staff decide to let a Rolling Stones writer go along with your headquarters, and then you let your guys go out and get drunk and say whatever the hell they want to, you brought that on yourself. So the pendulum swings back and forth. But at the end of the day, there's one, you know, your country's at war and you're those people who are the only ones who could come rescue you are the ones that are telling you we won't come rescue you. If you do what we tell you not to, to me, it's just an absolute lack of common sense. And I'm not wasting American lives to rescue somebody because they don't want to listen.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's almost negligent, you know,
3: that's the well done. That's the perfect word. It is absolutely intentional negligence to go into a war zone, whether it's, you know, if it's, you you know, I, I told a reporter one time, he was asking me about why I didn't want, um, the media embedded with them. Well, number one, we deal with um, classified area areas that you don't have any business being in because your job is not our job. Um, number two, if it was that important for you to go inside of Ramadi and get the scoop for the news story, then how come the... Media organization you work for doesn't provide you their own security because they ain't going to go in there and get their people killed. So they're going to send your <laughs> dumbass. Right, right. And when you, I guess the frustrating thing is, is when you try to reason with people, this goes back to our early conversation, there's just certain people you can't reason with, even though you try. And the interesting thing is, is that when you, hindsight's always twenty twenty, but when you're dealing with insurgents who don't follow any laws, they don't follow any rules, they don't do anything other than whatever the hell they want to, that's usually the last lesson that some of these people learn before their head's locked off on national TV or excuse me, on the internet.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, and you know, the, the, uh, the global one terror is filled with stories like that, you know, um, journalists kind of just going places they really shouldn't be and, and getting captured, you know, and, uh,
3: well, journalists, uh, people, human rights organizations, um, you know, you don't, Just because, I mean, just because you're an American citizen, it does not give you the prerogative to go willy-nilly tiptoeing through a war zone, even if that's your organization's mandate, if it's going to cause other Americans to get killed. That's just wasting people's lives, and that's the most, if I was the leader of the free world, that'd be a surefire way for you to get your ticket punched and you'd be moved out of the United States.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, um, and, and it's kind of interesting. Like people don't, it seems like people don't, uh, learn lessons from history. You know what I mean? Or, well, I, I don't, I don't know what it is, man, but, um,
3: well, they say history doesn't repeat itself.
1: Humans repeat
3: history. And the shameful thing is, is that it's always happened, it's always gone on. Anytime there's a conflict, whether the U.S. is directly involved in a conflict or not, people get kidnapped and tortured and murdered and raped and uh, blackmailed. And again, unfortunately, I'm afraid that for some people, it's the last lesson that they ever learn and it's too late, but I don't, I, I don't, I don't agree with it at all. I think, um, without getting too emotionally charged, um, I think it was an, not only was it an, it, an incompetent decision by the president and his staff but I also think it was immoral and I believe it should have been impeachable because it's not like he took a couple of hours to go and speak to any of the majority leaders, minority leaders, tell them here's what I'm thinking. You know, I'm trying to do the right thing here. What do you think we need to do? You know, the whole team building unity of effort. It's, it was thrown out the window for the opportunity to get a media story under the justification of, well, we always go after, you know, every American's my responsibility, blah, blah, blah. No, there's a, there's Americans vacation and then jails all over the world because they want to sell drugs to kids. They want to commit crimes against humanity and do stupid stuff. And the embassies. And the the, uh, the presidencies don't try to the State Department doesn't try to rescue them because they do things that are stupid. So how is what Bergdahl did any different? I mean, under under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, if if someone is accused of a crime and you have six people. As witnesses, not one, not two, not three, you've got a half dozen people saying, this is what the guy did, and here's the evidence, and here's the proof. That guy's going to get convicted. So there's no rational explanation. Their excuse that we don't leave any American behind doesn't carry any weight because there's people that are left behind all the time because they did things that were catastrophically stupid and they had to pay for it. It's not, you see what I'm saying? They'll look at something and say, well, in this particular case, it's not worth going after trying to get this guy back because he did something that could damage us politically or endanger other people's lives.
1: Right. And, um, you know, it's it's just a great point, and uh, I appreciate having the audience be able to hear from you. You know, given your experience and your position in the in the in country when that was happening.
3: Well, like I said, I when I wore that uniform, I didn't say things that it wasn't my place, but. If there's an American who needs help, even if it was by accident, that to me is somebody, hey, we're coming to get you. We ain't gonna leave anybody behind. When I say that, that comment is meant within reason.
1: Right, it's it's logical correct okay so in the beginning of the episode you know we spoke about we spoke briefly about the book uh, the Lions of Kandahar um, so this book this it spoke you gave some backstory on some of what happened leading up to this big operation and then and and at the time it was the largest uh, NATO military operation is that is that correct Yes, that was correct. Okay, so now this the the big fight took place in uh, Sporangar, and that is a mountain region in southern Afghanistan, and it's pretty much the heartland of the Taliban. So it is a place where they are really not trying to give up any ground. Um, now, can you just give some backstory on some of that? I know some some of the audience have definitely read your book, um, but I think it would be interesting to hear, you know, some of the the backstory on that.
3: Okay, um, I guess the, the the true interesting part of why this place, why why Penjue District and the Jari District were so important to the insurgency, if you think of it in respect to Kandahar was the southern capital. So you had the northern capital, which was Kabul, which is Kabul. But the southern capital is and always has been considered Kandahar city and Kandahar province. And it's always been strategic to southern Afghanistan, and it always will be. Since the time of Alexander the Great, Kandahar has been at the crossroads of all five major cities in Afghanistan. It It was the primary road between ancient Asia and Persia. It's right along what they called the Silk Road. It's the center of gravity. For southern Afghanistan, and within Kandahar province, the Panjway and Zari districts are the most critical. It's the geographic birthplace of the Taliban, where Mullah Omar proclaimed himself the supreme leader of the Taliban. Panjway is also key territory and key ter- terrain because many of the Taliban leaders are landowners there. So the Taliban is even today essentially fighting for their homeland in every sense of the word. And it's very fair to say, so as as Kandahar goes, so goes Afghanistan. The battle that we fought during Operation Medusa to seize and hold Spearwangar was strategic because of several things. The first was that it changed the paradigm of how the enemy fought us. Operation Medusa proved to the insurgencies around the world that no matter how they fought, they would be defeated if they got even close to fighting us on our own terms. It's important to understand that any insurgency must have the will and the support of the people. If you separate them, if you separate the insurgent, the guerrilla, from the will and support of the people, which are the auxiliary and the underground, no insurgency can survive. Right. The now, interesting
1: uh, now sir, they have to no, I'm saying now they have to fight you on a level playing field versus like more of a hit and run tactics type of deal.
3: Absolutely. And the you know the historically when you look at probably the first and most well-known guerrilla commander was Hannibal when he was fighting the Romans. If you take away that ability for an insurgent to fight you, then you have completely changed the dynamic of the battle. The enemy had to face us. They had moved in there in large numbers for people who are familiar with the Vietnam War, this was compared to um, the Tet Offensive when the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese Army essentially attempted to conduct large-scale simultaneous attacks across all of Vietnam in order to severely degrade political support and home support for the war, the intent behind um, the Southern commander, his name was Mullah Dadullah Lang. And he only answered to one person and that was Mullah Omar. And what he wanted to do was he had amassed, they guess somewhere around 2,000 insurgents in Panjwai and Jari, where they had the support of the local populace, and they were moving people and resources from the west to the east into Kandahar city, and then smuggling weapons and leaders from Pakistan and Kuwaita up to Kandahar into to excuse me, into Kandahar with the hopes of overrunning all the police stations and all the vo- voting places and all of the Afghan army bases in, in, in and around Kandahar city in their minds and the Taliban's mind, this would cause the U S to fracture and force the U S and the coalition to be pulled out of Southern Afghanistan. That failed because Operation Medusa was initiated to attack the insurgency where the enemy had massed, again focusing on the art of war by Sun Tzu and the principles, principles of warfare by Clausewitz. Once the enemy came together and were willing to fight in larger groups, we had already established the initiative and all we had to do then was take it to them
1: right and the the book uh lines of kandahar uh detail you know what these operations were like day to day and 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 some of the the battles that were fought and it's uh, i highly recommend it uh for anybody who's listening i think it's an excellent book uh, and like I said earlier, if you follow me on social media, then you've seen some of my posts where I've posted like a, a tiny excerpt from the the book. Um, and and every time I've posted about it, the posts have gotten a, a large number of likes. So I know people would be very interested in reading this book. Uh, so so once again, people can get it on Amazon, right? Or pretty much anywhere where they sell books.
3: Yes, sir. Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Amazon. Um... Mm-hmm any major outlet on the internet, your local bookstore uh, should have it if they're sold out of it. Um, It's in, it's in pretty large production. So uh, you can get it for your tablet on an e-reader. You can get MP3 CDs, uh, hard copies and soft copies obviously are available. Um, One of the, I think one of the, First of all, thank you for for talking about it and supporting it. One of the things that I, I find most interesting and I think that I'm proudest of is the fact that there's not a political slant to it. There's not a tirade about the rules of engagement or blaming a general or an admiral or commander. It's really focused on telling the story of the heroism, an example or examples of the heroism that go on every day that the American, on their behalf, that the American people don't know anything about. I only wrote the book for my guys. Um, I think that that comes through in, in what we've been able to put together with the story. And nobody's been so upset that they're willing to <laughs> confront me over it they they uh I wanted people to remember them and you know we just we just went went through another memorial day where you know we tell people we will remember you but we have to tell these stories about those men in order to memorialize them otherwise they're just that we're not fulfilling our obligation that we promised them that we would remember them. We've got to do better than that. They deserve better than that. We've got to be able to tell people not only who they were, but what they did. And they did it as a volunteer army, um, a, a volunteer, you know, volunteer military. And it's probably, one of the few books that you will read that you will put that, I I promise you, you'll put that book down and you will feel a sense of pride and patriotism. You want to go run around your neighborhood, waving your flag and you'll feel good about being an American. It's not about sheer sure escape. It's not about defeat. It's about
1: defiance
3: it's the Alamo, but
1: we won. Yeah, and and uh, you know I can I can attest to that, and um, you know, and and I, I know a lot of guys who have read it and have you know nothing but good things to say about the book. Um, and and you know, like you said, and we were talking offline, and you know, there's a there's a fine line that you have to walk when you're you're doing media and. It's, it's involving military, you know, combat, special operations. Right. And, um, but like you said, these, some of these stories have to be told, you know, in and, and, and order to properly pay tribute to uh, the men who are doing it, you know. And if you go through any culture in history, you know, any warrior culture, uh, most famous, you know, the Spartans, the samurai, uh, people knew about what, they were, what was happening in battle, and and that was part of what kept the culture going was you know that that sense of pride that you know your fellow clansmen or your fellow countrymen were, a- were able to accomplish these things in battle for a good reason and and that helps groom the next generation of warfighters. fighters um, you know so I I, I want to you know we'll close out the interview I want to Thank you sincerely for uh, taking out the time to come on and um, sharing some of your truth with the audience. I, I think they'll definitely appreciate it. Um, you know, I want to thank you for your service and everything you've done, and uh, you know, hopefully we can get you back on for future episodes. Well, thank you, John.
3: And um, I can't tell you any opportunity I get to tell stories about our servicemen and women. I'm. I'll take it. And I really appreciate you having me on. I hope you invite me back. And please tell your listeners, you know, thank you for being a country worth fighting for.
2: Yeah. Hey, I really enjoyed hearing from uh, Major Bradley's perspective uh, and just great interview. I can't wait to hopefully one day, 30 years from now, when my schedule clears out, I'm going to pick up that book <laughs> and I'm going to inhale it. So, uh, yeah, well, when the kids move out they're two and three right now. So it's not looking good. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, So no, no, it it is really cool. Just um, someone who's been so immersed and studied in the tribal origins uh, of the given area that he was operating in in Afghanistan. And I think it's important if you know how your enemy thinks, you can use that knowledge to make decisive plans in the future. But that that psychological human element informed by an understanding of their origins, how they think, how they live, how they feel. I think that's very, very good intelligence is actually just good history of the past. And, and I think uh, it'd be easy for folks to miss how important that information is. So, so for me, I I thought that was just a really cool piece. Um,
1: Yeah. Okay. So with that, uh, we'll close out for this week's episode. Um, you can find John, what, what's your social media handle for anyone who wants to check you out on Instagram?
2: Sure. Yeah. It's just on Instagram right now. I'm the warrior poet society.
1: Okay, cool. So you can catch John on there. You know, he, it his post on there. Interesting. It's not just like, you know, chest bumping military stuff. It's kind of thoughtful. Uh, deeper, if you will. So
2: yeah, it, it's art of war type stuff, and I'm trying to help just give advice for folks thinking about going in the military, people who already are, uh, stuff that's inherent to gunfighting versus just shooting, competitive shooting, or, or or whatever else like that, and and some stuff that's it's really designed more for people of deep thought and deep conscience uh, to be able to kind of pull back the. Male egotism and whatever else, the facade, and uh, as Nacho Libre would say, get down to the nitty gritty. That was the corniest thing I've ever said. But I love that movie, so I'm not I'm not apologizing for it.
1: Uh, so uh, my website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook is FB Recon. I have two Instagram handles. The first one is IG Recon. The second is globalrecon_ink. underscore inc. My Twitter account is IG Recon. And you can also now find Global Recon on LinkedIn if you want to connect on a professional network. Just search Global Recon. Uh, We'll see you guys in a couple of days with another episode. Peace.